You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Howdy, y'all, from Austin, Texas. It is a hot summer out here. Just made my way back up from Costa Rica. Do a little work over here at Under 30 Experiences, our headquarters. And uh, today I have a really cool episode with Elizabeth Fosslin. And she has written a really cool book, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. I think you guys are really going to like this. Uh, as you guys might know, before Under 30 Experiences came a website for entrepreneurs called Under 30 CEO, co-founded in late 2008. And that's pretty cool. I have to say, it's pretty cool because I still love doing career stuff once in a while, even though my focus is much shifted to travel, obviously, and then health, anything on mindset, meditation, etc. But this one bridges the gap a little bit, embracing your emotions and being able to work more, we say work smart, but emotionally intelligent. And that's what this one is all about. You're going to get a lot out of this. I certainly did. Thank you guys for listening. If you guys want to hit me up, you always can give me feedback. I really love hearing from you guys at Matt Wilson TV on Instagram, occasionally on Twitter. I check that meh, once or twice a week, but constantly do tweet stuff. But uh, yeah, Instagram is where I spend, well, not that much time, but uh, social media wise, that's where I spend time. I'm going to wrap this one up. But if you guys are interested in coming on Under 30 Experiences trip, you should check out our trips on sale page. We just started doing deep discounts after seven years in business, and we're really happy. It makes people happy. I want you to be happier. So check that out. Hit me up at Matt Wilson TV. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much. Hello, everybody. Welcome. I'm your host, Matt Wilson. And today I'm here with Elizabeth. Fosslein, someone whose name I've now asked her how to pronounce four times, but she is an author and illustrator who designs ways to make work better. She is the co-author and illustrator of No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work, someone I'm really excited to talk today uh, about her book and the project and how we can all enjoy what we do, uh, possibly from the hours of nine to five. A little bit more. So Elizabeth or Liz, thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And you got the name perfectly right. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it was about the mental block. Uh, it's kind of the names with where the spelling could go either way. Then you don't know which way it, it goes sometimes, I guess. I don't know what that was all about. No worries. Yeah, it's a confusing one. My parents actually, so it's my dad's last name, and he sometimes pronounces it differently than my mom pronounces it. <laughs> so it's just, I've gotten used to all kinds of pronunciations and it's fine. Okay, I'm glad that you say that. And I have, <laughs> uh, I have friends who will pronounce their own names differently depending on how who they're speaking with or it, i just think it's so yeah for whatever reason i some people i will ask how they say their name and sometimes they'll just say oh it doesn't matter yeah <laughs> okay whatever whatever you want anyway liz um I, i'd love just to hear a little bit more about your background and how you became uh, if if I can say obsessed with making work better. 
Yeah. So my background is actually, it's not in psychology or organizational design. I studied economics and math and then went on to be an economic consultant out of school. And after two years, I burnt out of that job, which was a really scary experience. I think especially in consulting, there's kind of a set career path. You then go to grad school and then maybe you come back, but it's really easy to see what you need to do to kind of get to that next level. And so burning out of that job, it was really long hours. I didn't find the work as meaningful. I was like also on a particularly, I would say difficult case. And so, yeah, I think that experience for me really made me want to dig in one to figure out like, what could I have done better on my end? Cause I was just I was having a lot of anxiety how could I have regulated that better or practice better self-care? And then two, looking back and figuring out why was this job? Why didn't it seem to be working out for me? And how should that impact the kind of career that I wanted to create for myself? It was really scary to suddenly look into the future and see like no defined path. And so I could only look backwards and then combine that with a lot of psychological research, also looking at behavioral economics, again, trying to figure out what could I have done on my end? And then what kind of environment, what kind of work would be like more sustainable for me? That's really cool. And I'd love if you could elaborate a little bit more on burnout, because I think it's something that we hear a lot about today in our culture, but I'm not sure if there is an actual definition or if it's just a feeling that you get, uh, because I know even in, I do a lot of podcasts on wellness and, you know, doctors will talk about burnout as actual, what it means medically. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious what your definition of burnout is or, or just how you felt in general. Yeah. So I can give the definition and then, and then I'll go a little bit into how I felt. So burnout, it's more than just occasionally feeling tired or bored. I think everyone has days at work when it's kind of a struggle to get out of bed or it's just, you know, things aren't firing the way that they should be. Um, but burnout is deeper. So there's a psychologist, Christina Maslach, and she's at Berkeley. And she has kind of pioneered the research into burnout. And so she gives three top signs. So the first is emotional exhaustion. And that's just like every day you're dragging often you have trouble sleeping. I think another sign of this is you just find yourself getting sick a lot. Maybe you don't have the flu, but you just always have a head cold. Um, there's just always something that's, you know, you're, you don't feel physically well. Uh, the second is depersonalization. And so this happens when you feel really cynical. Um, you don't really look forward to anything in your job. You don't feel optimistic about your chances. And then small things just really start to irritate you. So if day in and day out, you're feeling just really upset with things, that might be a sign of burnout. And then the last thing that she identifies is lethargy, which is similar to emotional exhaustion, but this is more specific to the work you're doing. Like you just can't get excited about anything. Um, you feel like you're going through the motions. Again, I think that the big takeaway from this is if you just feel for weeks on end, no motivation anymore, and it's just a drag to bring yourself into the office and to try and communicate with people, that's a really strong sign of burnout. And that's definitely what I was feeling. I mean, mine actually... So I also entered the workplace really believing that you could never show emotion and that you should never talk about emotion with anyone. 
And I think that's extremely detrimental. I'm not saying that you should become a feelings fire hose in the workplace, but I think looking back, if I had talked with some of the other analysts and been like, Hey, I'm feeling anxious or I'm not really sure where I stand or even just known that if I was feeling anxious, maybe I should have an open conversation with my manager and be like, here's what I'm working on. How do you think I'm doing on this? Are our priorities aligned? And just, you know, that might've made me feel more confident and alleviated some of those fears. And instead I just suppressed, suppressed, suppressed. And that meant that I had all this energy. I wasn't doing anything with it. And I ended up having like horrible migraines. I was getting really sick. Um, again, classic signs of burnout. And eventually I just realized that this wasn't a sustainable thing for me. Wow. Uh, well, well, thank you for sharing that, first of all. And uh, I'd love to know, is there a test online that you can take or questionnaire or, you know, do you have to have all of these things going wrong or what, or are there different levels of burnout? Because I can think of examples of in my own life where I've been burned out on things, not necessarily on life in general or right. uh, business in general, but I, I'm, uh, yeah, I'd love to know if there are different levels or how can you, how can you be sure, I guess. Yeah, I think there are tests online. Um, I can't point anyone to a specific one, but I'm pretty sure that, again, uh, Christina Maslach has uh, like a burnout questionnaire. So I would, yeah, I would have people Google her name. It's M-A-S-L-A-C-H. Uh, and I think there you'll find some stuff. And then to your point, you know, burnout come, there are different levels of burnout. Um, you can be burnt out by being on a specific team. It might be the work in general. And so something that in the book, we really encourage people to do is to really think about why are you feeling so down and kind of to stay, take a step back, maybe to even take like a few days of vacation and take that time to really mull over. Is there something on a deeper level or is there something on a surface level? So it could be that like just in general, you don't find the work motivating. And then maybe time to start thinking about like what other work could you do or could you shift your job to do something else, especially if you're at a startup. I think often there, there's so much to do that it's easier in those positions to be like, hey, I want to start focusing on design instead of just purely sales or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, maybe it's your boss that's just very erratic or just really pinpointing what those things are and then thinking about how you can manage that specific thing. Okay, great. And just to point out to the listeners that, of course, our topic of conversation is work here, but it's possible to get burned out from other things. Uh, Liz, so I, I own a tour operator, a travel company, and we have lots of trip leaders that get to travel all over and lead trips around the world. And it gets very challenging to just live out of a backpack for one to two years at a time. And so burnout from travel is something that we uh, talk a lot about, or even people who kind of just travel and are uh, the digital nomad types, which we have a lot of interviews on the podcast about. And I can think of one example in particular, where I was just tired of actually the country of Costa Rica. It just oh, had, no. I just was sick of it. And I love Costa Rica to death. But after five years, uh, it just the lots of things just kind of 
got in my way. I won't go into the details about uh, bureaucracy and just the the lifestyle and things going wrong and it, everything that was going could go wrong in a country was was going wrong. And I got to the point, one of the red flags that you just mentioned, where you're very irritable about things that shouldn't really be irritating to you, or you just don't want to talk about them or have any type of, uh, yeah, you're just, you're just burned out. I mean, I think everybody gets it, but you can get burned about out on exercise. You can get burned out on a lot of different things. Um, but yeah, thank you for explaining that. And I just want to note, uh, not to go on too long, but we will link up any of the resources here on under30co.com so that people can grab the show notes if they want any of the resources that you mentioned. So, okay. So you went through this uh, at your first job and then how did you improve your situation? Yeah. So I was, I think it was like 23 or 24 when I left and I had been every afternoon to escape the office. I'd been going to the Starbucks. And so when I quit my consulting job, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I also realized that I needed health insurance. And this was before Obama had extended. I think eventually he extended it so that until the age of 26, you could stay on your parents' plan. But that hadn't happened yet. So I had read somewhere that at Starbucks, if you worked 20 hours a week, so part-time, you could still get full benefits. So I actually went into this Starbucks that I'd been going to every day as a customer. And I was like, hey, you know me. Can I be a barista here? And then I went through the application process. And so I worked actually as a barista at Starbucks for maybe five months. Oh, wow. Well, at the same time, I was... For me, it like gave me something to do. It gave me some money. Again, gave me benefits while I was trying to figure out like what do I want to do next? And also doing all this research into psychology and organizational design. And Starbucks was fascinating to me because I really... Yeah, I guess I like kind of maybe naively and a little arrogantly was like, I guess I'll learn to make a really cool cappuccino, but it's more just a side thing for me. Um, And I was really surprised. I mean, one, by just how loyal people are to the brand and how like people would come in every single morning and seem to really love Starbucks. And I think that was a product of how well Starbucks designs its stores. You know, they changed the music based on the time of day. At the time, they only had circular tables so that if you come in, you know, if you're sitting alone at a circular table, it's fine. At a square table, there's kind of three obvious seats that are empty. Um, So just like these really little things that they had thought about, the lighting changes, like the pastry cases all have to be really carefully set up so that there's like uniformity across the stores. And so I think that to me was this crash course into the power of design and how it could be incredibly lucrative. Again, coming from like an econ math background, I think my, I was always like, art is awesome, but I have no idea how I could like weave that into a career. And so this kind of was like, wow, it's definitely a career. There's amazing things that design can do and and evoking an emotion is extremely powerful. Um, So I think that combined with all this research I was doing into, again, psychology and looking at different organizations, I think that was the formation of, for me, the thesis of the book Um, and also the design of the book. It's illustrated. So it's, again, supposed to be treat your emotions with affection. This doesn't have to be a scary topic. Um, I think so often when we hear about emotion in the workplace, it's like, you know, you're going to like 
squelch your emotions or you're going to wrangle them into submission or like how to beat down your emotions. Um, and that's really, I think, detrimental to most people. So the book is both in design and then the text is really trying to build a case for why, again, you should just acknowledge what you're feeling and, ex- and examine it. So that was kind of my immediate post-consulting journey and I think very formative in in how I and then my co-author Molly and I uh, approached this book. Okay, that that's great. And I want to get into how people can embrace their emotions, of course, and, and, mm. and at work, uh, as well as learn how you were able to take art and make a viable business career out of it, if you will. But I actually wanted to go back to that bit about the square tables versus round tables. So are you saying that if you're at a round table, it's not so obvious that you're sitting alone and that there are three unoccupied spots and maybe it's just a little bit more inviting and casual if you're sitting at a round table and maybe somebody could slide up next to you if they wanted to? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's the theory is that because they, they really, Starbucks wanted, and I think still want, they want it to be like your third place. So you have home, you have work, and then what's this third place that you go to that you feel really attached to, but it's you know a little separate area. And so in that spirit, they wanted it to be a place where you could go and like, I also want to say I'm not being paid by Starbucks. I just was like really fascinated. Sure, <laughs> sure. I worked there. But yeah, they want it to be a place where you could go and like sit at the table and be there alone and like work on your laptop. And I think now this was, you know, when I was there, it was maybe like seven years ago. And so I think now that's much more common that we go to coffee shops and work for a long time. And so, yeah, the idea of this circular table is that you wouldn't, you would feel comfortable just sitting there. And then again, to your point, like the flip side is if you had more than four people, it was really easy to kind of squeeze everyone in, you know, in, in a round table, it's, it's just can be feel like much more equitable. You don't have like two people obviously on one side and one person on the other side. So just in, in general, that was the thinking behind the circular seating arrangement. No, that makes a lot of sense. And for collaboration also, if you're at a circular table, somebody can slide around and look at what you're working on on your screen. Yeah. I sat down for a meeting the other day and it was with my business partner and we had a lot to go over. And I looked at him, I was like, all right, so how do we do this? Do we sit on opposite sides of the table or should we sit on the same <laughs> side of the table? What do we do here? But if you're in a collaborative workspace and people can slide around on this side and kind of circular seems more about gathering rather than this square methodical, okay, this is my workspace where you kind of draw your cube around yourself. Uh, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I think the idea of, of like gathering and community comes through really strongly in that in that design thinking. Okay, cool. And you said something really interesting about art and that you probably have always felt like an artist, but realize, and probably have always been told by other people that, well, you can't make a career out of that. You must be a consultant and your your work must be featured in The Economist, The Financial Times, NPR, (laughs) Quartz, Fast Company, The Freakonomics blog, and Lifehacker, as I'm currently reading from your bio. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So how did you make that transition? Yeah. So I think the 
bigger background is that my parents both immigrated from Northern Europe and they're very stoic and they both have PhDs. My dad's also a doctor. And so it just came like very much with this mentality of like, you get an education, you get graduate degrees, and then you get like the most stable career you can find. And I think that was the best thing that they did for themselves. And I think kind of within that, it was also like really prioritizing rationality and quantitative skills. And so my dad really wanted me to be a doctor. And then when I decided, I didn't really decide, but I just totally pass out at the sight of a needle and I just can't handle blood. (laughs) And then I was like, I guess I'll try economics and math. That seems like another good quantitative thing where there's no needles. (laughs) But yeah, it was very deeply ingrained in me that even though I had always doodled as a child and like loved like crafting, it just somehow had never entered my world as a career opportunity. And unfortunately, I think that that's, I think that's changing now, especially because the internet and like Instagram and social media open us to so many cool career paths. Like they're just more visible. But yeah, I think the Starbucks for me was this fascinating look at it really, I started thinking like, who's designing the cups? Like who made the logo? All of these people are artists in their own way. So yeah, so then I just, I decided that to teach myself like some kind of creative skill, I was just going to start putting my feelings into charts because that seemed like a really nice blend of my more like mathy background and then trying to like more explore what was going on internally. And so I just took like experiences that I'd had, like life as an analyst, a job interview and started charting out. It wasn't based on data, but it was more like, here's how I feel at different parts of the day and like different parts of this process and just put those on my personal site. And, uh, there was one project that was, it was right around Valentine's day. So I did 14 ways an economist says, I love you, which was taking traditional economics charts and turning them into like love notes. So the idea, (laughs) one of them was like, the marginal returns of spending time with you will never diminish. Uh, In economics, there's this concept that like, (laughs) the more you do something, the less you like it. Like the first bite of the ice cream cone is always way better than the 10th bite. Right. So just like really nerdy stuff like that. And I think that actually ended up being, you know, like my quote unquote big break. Uh, Because I... So this is something that I really strongly believe in, which is if it takes you 10 minutes to write like a really thoughtful, passionate human email or even an hour, and there's like a 2% chance that the person you're emailing will respond, it's worth sending the email. And so with these Valentine's charts, I just emailed like these three economics bloggers that I idolized and had throughout college and throughout my job. And was like, Hey, I made these charts. It's Valentine's Day tomorrow maybe you think they're cool. You know, if you could like, maybe you want to link them or even just look at them. So I really had no expectations. And then a bunch of them wrote back and ended up putting them on their sites. And then they went viral. And I think that for me, one was it kind of my work became more out there. I think that was a lot of like the places that you listed a lot of those features of economics, Valentine's charts. But it also for me was such a nice, like validation of one, again, just like send the email. It's, you never know what's going to happen. And then two, that this merging of something like more artistic and goofy and creative with the more 
sort of serious and quantitative, that there's a special kind of magic there. And I think that integral to that is emotion. And especially in the modern workplace, as we more and more move to digital and a lot of stuff is being automated, I think that the best work you can produce is going to be taking the skills you've learned and then infusing them with emotion and like infusing them with something a little different and creative. So that was a long-winded answer, but I hope it answered the question. <laughs> no, absolutely. It, it yeah. definitely does. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it, of course, you you sharing. And, and you said, did you say that your family was uh, Northern European or did I just make that up? No, you did not make it up. I said that. Okay, because I actually wanted, I was thinking about this before the interview when I was reading some of your, uh, or ingesting some of your comics, and I thought of my dad, who is extremely introverted. He is of Northern European descent, and he was an engineer very, very, you know, <laughs> you're starting to get the... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The stereotypes, like, you know, there's even a joke, I think it's Scandinavian. How do you know if a person from Scandinavia likes you? And the answer is that they uh, they look at your shoes instead of their own. <laughs> and so, you know, this is how <laughs> this is how I I grew up, basically. And of course, my mom is is much different, but it took me really long time to understand my dad, and also just, you know, that that shapes the way that you go around the world. And of course, then I ended up uh, living in Latin America for five years. And that completely, is, is, you know, it's completely different culture, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, expressing emotions or just uh, touching, hugging, kissing, all, all of this is much different. And if something comes to your mind, you usually just say it and you don't really have to, yeah, you don't have to worry about it. And so these types of cultures are ingrained in people, or at least they were in me. So I, I'm curious how that impacted you growing up in that type of environment. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I also, I had a friend in college who was from Spain and yeah, the differences in how we interacted with each other naturally were so funny because yes. I, you know, like I would stick my hand out to shake his hand and he would just be like, Elizabeth and like hug me and then like kiss each cheek. And I was just like, right. Oh my God, this is way too much for me. So yeah, I think growing up, I definitely, I bought into what I now believe is a false dichotomy that you have rationality on one side and then emotion is kind of pulling you off into complete irrationality. And so that, yeah, I think I, whenever I had really strong emotional reactions, or let's say that I was sad for a day, or I would be anxious, I felt really bad about that because it had never really been normalized again, because no one was talking about it. And I think these are things, especially the more that I read and the more that I talk to people that everyone goes through. And there's also research that shows that the people who are actually able to bounce back the fastest from difficult emotions, from a bad day or from anxiety are the ones that kind of just accept it and acknowledge it and then try to move on as opposed to going into the spiral where it's like, I'm anxious. Am I going to be anxious forever? And you start catastrophizing, which is absolutely what I used to do again, because it seemed one, like there was no outlet. 
And two, because no one was talking about it, it seemed like I was the only person that was feeling this. And then that felt horrible because I was like, what's wrong with me? Why do I have all these things going on? And everyone else is like, you know, a placid lake over there. So I think, you know, a big thing that we, we talk about in the book is just treating yourself, like giving yourself permission to feel these things. Again, that's not an endorsement for you to like, if you're having a sad day, really take it out on someone else. But it's more just processing that, trying to think like, what are the reasons I might be having a bad day right now? But also keeping in mind that, you know, a lot of the times there's not a really clear thing that's causing the emotion. And so as much as, as much as we can, like try to identify the need behind the emotion. So if you're really anxious, you might figure out, Oh, I'm anxious because I'm worried about meeting this deadline. And there you can easily sit down and say, okay, what can I do to address this need? And then when you feel better about meeting the deadline, you'll probably find that a lot of your anxiety goes away. That said, I think there are also days when like, you're just a little anxious or you didn't sleep well. And so you're, you're sad or you're jumpy and just kind of understanding that that's something that happens in everyone. It doesn't mark who you are as a person. And so, you know, just, just kind of sit with it as opposed to turning it into this big thing or feeling like it's going to last forever. Okay, great. And Liz, you had a really interesting illustration on your website about introverts versus extroverts. Mm. And I know this is such a, a challenging thing for people to understand especially because, well, you most people sit on one side of the table or another, or the people who do sit on the more extreme introvert, more extreme extrovert, really have difficulty understanding, you know, this other type of, of person. So I'm curious if, if you could just lay that out for us a little bit so we can understand a little bit better how that affects people at work. Totally. So I think a big misconception is that introverts hate people and they don't like to go to social things and that extroverts can't ever stop talking. <laughs> I think first, most people aren't so extreme. They're kind of like somewhere in the middle. There's a spectrum. Um, but really introversion and extroversion is about how you recharge. So do you, if you've had a long day, you know, you've had a lot of meetings. It's just been really stressful. Do you prefer to crawl into your bed with a cup of hot cocoa and just be in the silence or like read a book? Or do you really feel the need to go to dinner with some of your closest friends or call someone? So extroverts are the ones that need that, that social feedback. That's how they gain energy. And then introverts are the ones that really recharge by being alone. So big differences, introverts have a higher basal rate of arousal. So if they're in a place where there's a lot of stuff going on in the background, that's going to affect them a lot more than it would an extrovert who's better able to tune that out. And so in the workplace, I think just a big step for a lot of offices would just be acknowledging that people have different preferences. Um, and again, this doesn't have to be an intense, scary conversation. In the book, we recommend that teams take, they take maybe half an hour to just sit down and have each person answer a few questions. And in the book, we list some of these questions, but examples are, you know, I tend to be more of an introvert. I tend to be more of an extrovert. Um, another question is like, what are some of my quirks? What's something that people misunderstand about me? And then also, how do I, how do I prefer to receive feedback? 
So extroverts, again, tend to really like in the moment feedback. Uh, They like to be praised in front of a group. They get a lot from that. Whereas an introvert, uh, so Molly, my co-author is an introvert and she, her manager once praised her in front of the entire team. And Molly said she felt so awkward in that moment. And so the manager was trying to do this really nice thing for Molly. But Molly, as an introvert, would have much preferred just like a little email that said, hey, thanks so much for your contribution, as opposed to like being made the star of the show suddenly. So again, just like taking some time, have everyone answer those questions and then go around in a circle and just say like, what are your preferences? Are you introverted? Are you extroverted? How do you think our team could better structure meetings? Are extroverts pausing enough to give introverts a chance to jump in? Something that introverts benefit a lot from are agendas sent out ahead of time, which gives them a chance to like process the questions that are going to be discussed and then come prepared to answer questions as opposed to like on the spot having to just like say whatever they want. Another thing, if you're in an open office floor plan, extroverts tend to really enjoy this thing called managing by wandering around where they like to go around, you know, drop in, ask a question, check in on people. And I think from their perspective, it's just a chance for anyone to ask them questions. And it's really like opening themselves to their employees. And from an introvert's perspective, it's very stressful to have someone when you're trying to focus, pop in and then be like, what are you working on? What are you doing? Uh, How's everything going? She's like, oh, it's this immediate like, oh, I need to think of something as opposed to having more time or being able to prepare for a call or a meeting. So those are just a few steps to take. I think the biggest advice I would give is just take the time to sit down, discuss your preferences, and then have like an open discussion about, I mean, everyone in a workplace is going to have to make some compromises. You know, introverts can't just be in a corner for the entire workday. But I think there are small changes you can make that will make everyone feel more included. And also will get the most out of all of your employees or teammates. Well, uh, as you're going down the extroversion list, I'm just thinking how much I must terrify some people who, who work <laughs> for our company because I, I really, I do all of those things. Or if somebody, you know, will have a meeting and usually I have some, some notes jotted down that I've thought of through the week. But when someone has comes to me with a big laid out agenda. I appreciate it, but also somewhere inside of me, I'm like, oh my God, you dork, (laughs) because that's just not how my brain works or, you know, just popping up on people. It's just, it's just fun to just, Hey, what you working on? Anything I can do to help. And then you see the person kind of freeze in their tracks. And I, geez, now I'm feeling a little bit badly about it. Well, so I think two things. One, yeah, I had a very extroverted boss and I would send him these really thoughtful emails with bullet points and suggestions. And it became really clear to me after working with him for a few weeks, it wasn't working. Like he just wasn't reading these super long emails. (laughs) Uh, So one of the pieces of advice we have in the book is for introverts to, if they're working with extroverts, to tone down the length of the emails um, and kind of understand that like maybe just a bullet point where you can expand on it in person is best. Um, But then I think to your point where I think a lot of times in the workplace, we do things that make people uncomfortable or bulldoze over their feelings, but we have really good intentions. So you said like, Oh, it seems fun to pop in and say hi to someone. I think that's a very well-intentioned thing. And so, so the advice I would give based on that is just one, like 
barring crazy circumstances, like always try and give people the benefit of the doubt and assume good intentions. And then two, I think, again, it just speaks to the importance of communication. Like you definitely seem like someone where if I said, Hey, I would prefer if, if we had more structure around when we met. And if you could just give me a few hours in the afternoon when you don't pop in and then I can really focus, that would mean a lot for me and would really help my productivity. I think you'd be extremely receptive to that. And so again, it's just having the self-awareness to identify how you work best and then communicating that in a non-confrontational, like not aggressive way. I think just really, again, so much of it goes back to giving people the benefit of the doubt, but then also obviously like having colleagues that are going to be receptive to that conversation. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, just the feedback is that so interesting to me and how you give recognition as well. And I'm thinking back to my dad, who is the type of person, we all have these friends who would be horrified if we had a restaurant sing them happy birthday. I think we all have that friend. My my dad's so introverted that on Christmas, he would never open his presents in front of other people. And I'm as a kid, I can remember being like, dude, do you even like Christmas? What it, What is it like? People are going to be offended because you're not opening their, their gifts. But, you know, it's a little weird. People are looking at me. I got to open this present. I got to pretend to like it. So I, I think a lot of that does cross over to the workplace. Yeah, that's. I think the, the happy birthday at a restaurant is such a great example. I've actually told my boyfriend, who's very extroverted, I've told him, I was like, never a surprise party. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to stress me out too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can I can totally uh, imagine. I wanted to actually ask you a little bit more about the science of how people's brains work in these different uh, circumstances. And say, <laughs> don't worry, I won't quiz you mm-hmm. too hard on uh, people's dopamine levels and how their neurotransmitters work <laughs> and, and these types of things, because, well, neither of us. I don't think would would qualify to speak on all of the details in this, but there were some interesting things on your website about people's sensitivity to dopamine. Now, I will tell you, I always thought that, uh, let's say, extroverted leaders and people who are very type A and want to get things done, such as myself, will get a little hit of dopamine from checking off the box on whatever it is. And so that's how I always envisioned this concept of, of how neurotransmitters work. But in uh, on your website or in one of your articles, you had something interesting about how introverts are more sensitive to dopamine. And maybe it's not an A or B thing, but the part of the article mentioned that this external stimulus can overstimulate people a little bit, which I thought was was quite interesting. And so an introvert might, yeah, might work a little bit differently because their brains work a little bit differently. Do you think you could elaborate on that for, for us? Yeah. So this is, uh, some neuroscientists say that introverts' sensitivity to dopamine is much higher, which means that they need less of it to be happy. And so this would translate into in social interactions, when there's a lot of stimulus, uh, introverts are just like feeling that might not be that they're having more dopamine in that situation, but their response to it is much stronger. So there's, um, 
there's also something I'm trying to remember. It's where an introverts, because they're more sensitive to external stimuli, they will actually, studies have shown that they will salivate more at the taste of lemon juice than an extrovert. Wow. And again, this is, yeah. So this is, uh, I think Susan Cain who wrote quiet, which is kind of the seminal book on introverts. She cites this in her book and that's used again as this to reinforce this idea that introverts are just more sensitive to stimuli. So going into the workplace specifically, um, because extroverts brains run on more of an energy spending nervous system, like they just like need more dopamine. That's why they're seeking out more social interactions. That's why they don't get tired after a while. Uh, whereas introverts will start to flag after, you know, an hour or two of networking. And it's also why introverts feel content and energized when reading a book or thinking deeply or diving into their rich inner world of thoughts. Um, it's again, because they are more sensitive to the, the dopamine that they're getting. Okay. Interesting. And I guess we should, uh, we should cover what if people really do feel in the middle or I've met people who say, well, I'm an introverted extrovert or I'm an extroverted introvert or I don't like to put myself in a box or mm. <laughs> the the emotion, right? The, the feeling that just popped up with me was, well, I might be extroverted, but I certainly have a deep inner world. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, what, what do you say to the people in the middle? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, most people are somewhere in the middle. And I think that the biggest difference is, again, just in how you recharge. So this is also, I really discourage people from making claims like introverts are better, extroverts are better. Uh, it's more just on the spectrum. What are your personal preferences? And then honoring those and figuring out how, when you're working with other people, how can you best accommodate each other's preferences? So for example, for me, I know that if I've had a few days of just like crazy meetings and then going to dinners or going to events, I need to set aside a day on my calendar for nothing, for just being in bed, you know, like coming home after work and not talking to anyone. And that's really important to me. And that's not better or worse than someone else. That's just, I know that I need that. Or another thing is, so one example is for one of my jobs, we went on this three-day work retreat where everyone went to this big house and we did this twice. And the first time there were, there were just like activities and meetings the entire, from like 9am to 9pm. And then the feedback after that was just that a lot of people felt totally overstimulated and exhausted at the end of the day. And so the second time we did this retreat, there were big chunks of time where you could participate in a meeting or there were brainstorms, but there were also just a lot more opportunities for people to go back to their room and be by themselves or kind of go off and hike by themselves. So I think that's a nice example of, again, if you're in the middle somewhere, it might be that some afternoon you feel really excited and you want to go to meetings and you want to talk with people. And so in this retreat, that was definitely an option, but there was also an option. Let's say that afternoon you felt kind of lethargic or you just needed a break from everyone. You could go off and have that break. And so I would say to people in the middle, most people are in the middle, you know, it's, and again, it's not, there's no claims about like who's better, who's worse. Um, there's also no claims about like who makes a better leader, who makes a worse leader. There's been multiple studies and they don't really find that extroverts necessarily make better leaders or introverts make better leaders. A lot of really successful CEOs, you know, Bill Gates is one of them. They've been described as like meek and mild mannered. It's more just that you are able to 
figure out what you need, communicate that to other people, and then kind of carve out a life or a schedule that keeps you healthy and and keeps you full of energy, however you get that energy. Liz, I'm glad that you said the part about leaders don't necessarily have to be extroverted. I think that's really important to highlight. And in fact, you you mentioned some of your studies. And in, I think it was Good to Great by Jim Collins, he cited uh, his own research about how the most extroverted or the strongest, quote unquote, leader, uh, meaning the people who are the most, uh, hopefully I'm using the word outgoing Mm. properly, that the people who have these kind of big influential figureheads, these companies actually turn out to be weaker because there's one person leading the ship. There is one person doing a lot of sometimes overhyping and that a organization that's built solid through and through and not just being dragged along or hyped along by one influential leader can actually last a lot longer and withstand the test of time. Yeah. Have you seen have you seen this concept at all? I saw that and then there's another study that's similar that shows that I think economists, they analyzed the linguistic patterns of CEOs and they found that leaders that were more reserved actually were connected to a better bottom line. So they looked at shareholder meetings and what the CEO said during those meetings. So I think, yeah, I mean, like the, the upside of, of being very extroverted and charismatic as a leader is that you probably can like rally people around you really well. And the downside is that sometimes that extreme extroversion can drown out the voices of the people around you. And so, yeah, that concept, I've heard of that one before. And I I think there's other research that kind of backs that up. And then Adam Grant, who's a professor at Wharton, he has written like best-selling books, the originals, I think was his most recent one. He says that he really encourages leaders on both extremes to just act more like ambiverts. So the best is, so if you're in the middle, another great thing is it's probably kind of the best place to be as a leader because you're more easily able to accommodate both. Like you can be extroverted when you need to be, but then you're also, you know, fine seat on the sidelines and, and letting the people around you really shine or like gathering ideas from them. Um, so it does seem like it's useful to be able to both understand the tendencies of introverts and extroverts and then yourself kind of act as if you're kind of in the middle. Oh, great. And can you explain what you mean by ambiverts for us? Oh yeah. An ambivert is just someone, it's kind of what you were saying. It's this person that's in the middle. It's someone who sometimes needs to recharge by going home, but then also really enjoys and gets energy from really wonderful conversation or likes to meet new people. So these are people that again, are not on the kind of extreme introvert, extrovert scale, but fall somewhere in the middle. So they can act as both. Sure, that's great. And I I can't help but think if I was in a shareholder meeting and the numbers and the financials were not looking so pretty, I would have to do a lot of talking. But if the numbers <laughs> if the numbers look good, well, I would have no problem slapping that paper on the desk and put my feet up on the on the table. So Yeah. That's a really good point. That's interesting. I'll have to go back and see if they address that at all in the study. That's funny. 
Yeah, there was one other thing that it, it escapes me now, but there was one other thing that that popped up uh, along the lines of of Jim Collins. Hopefully, it'll come come back to me. I I can't remember, but uh, yes, it was from Y Combinator. There is a really good essay by Paul Graham, and he has this line that I always think of. It's something like "Fee fi fo fum." I smell a company run by marketing people. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. the point is, well, again, if you're just doing a lot of talking and your product isn't really that good, well, you're going to have to talk a lot more and do a lot more rallying the troops. But if everything's going well and you have built a solid foundation for a company, you're probably not going to need to do so much talking. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to go check that study and see if they address that. That's, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. So Liz, I know we have to wrap up soon, but I do want to ask you just some more actionable things that people listening right now uh, can do when it comes to embracing or managing their emotions at work. So if people are having a bad day. I think that's the easiest place to start. You're having a bad day at work. It might be outside. It might be family related or relationship based or something that you're dragging to work with you. And you're just having one of those days. What would you suggest people do? Yeah, I think the first is really to try and understand what's driving that negative emotion. So let's say you're feeling really sad and it might be that you just are having a blue day. It could be that the weather is bad and that's really affecting your emotion. It could also be that you feel like you gave a presentation the day before and it didn't go that well. And those are two very different causes of sadness. So if it's just the weather, then maybe it's just like, you know, I'm saying this is just going to be kind of a blue day for me. Maybe I can go home early and like have a good meal or see a friend or do something that might pick me up if it's that the presentation yesterday didn't go well, then it might be, okay, well, what steps can I take to ensure that it doesn't happen again? Do I need to work harder on the next one? Do I need to acquire a new skill? Can I get feedback from some people that were there that might help me? So I think it's really important to first stop, acknowledge the emotion and try and figure out some potential sources of that emotion. And then since we're talking about sort of a more sad, difficult emotion, one thing in the book that we advise people to do that I really love is we call it keeping a smile file, Uh, cheesy name, but I think the idea is great, which is just create a folder in your inbox, on your phone, on your desktop. And when people give you positive feedback, if they text you something really sweet, or if you get an email from your boss Again, you know, saying that you did a great job on something or from a colleague, just anything that brightens your day a little bit, screenshot it and save it to your folder. And so when you have a bad day, or I mean, another example we give is when you get a piece of critical feedback that's kind of hard to hear, you can just go back in and reference that folder. And that'll remind you of all these good things that you have going for you, all the things you've done well. And then it's easier to see that bad day to receive that piece of critical feedback as just a data point in a larger picture, as opposed to sitting there and really feeling like it's going to be bad forever. Oh, that's great. I like the the concept of the smile file. And Liz, if people listening are 
managers or entrepreneurs or CEOs, and they're trying to create a culture, whether it's within their organization, their community, or just their team, or or the few people around them at work that sit at their table and they want to build a place to work where people can feel okay with having emotions and expressing feedback. What would you tell those people? Yeah, I think just to really think about the small actions that they're taking. So in the book, we talk about micro actions, which are again, these like seemingly subtle gestures that communicate a lot. And so this is useful for leaders, managers, but even just if you're anyone sitting in on a meeting. And so these things are, you know, taking the time to learn how to pronounce someone's name correctly. So I really appreciate that you did that so diligently at the beginning of this uh, podcast. But then there's a great story that we have in the book where there's an executive and he has a team and there's a new senior designer on the team and he really wants to make everyone feel included. And so he always like looks people in the eye when he addresses them and and asks them questions and tries to make sure that everyone has a chance to talk during the meeting. And then after a few weeks, the senior designer comes up to him and she says, Hey, I can see that you're making an effort to have equitable conversation but I noticed that you address everyone else by name, but you never say my name. And I think it's because you don't know how to pronounce it. And so my name is Karishma and I just wanted to let you know. And he realized that she was right. Like he had been saying, John, what do you think? And Susan, how is this part of your thing going? And then when he would address her, he'd just be like, and you, you know, and like that, there is something that you're communicating in that, even if you have good intentions. And then one other specific thing that I think is more targeted towards leaders is to try and set up or fund or give employees the space to just like randomly pair up and go to lunch or go to coffee with someone else. Maybe once a week, once a month, whatever feels right. Um, There's so much that can be gained from these kind of informal interactions, from just having people on your staff that don't normally work together have a better relationship. Like you never know what kind of innovation is going to come out of that. It also just helps people feel more of a sense of belonging if they get to know other people on a personal level. So there are organizations where you can opt in and they say, if you opt into this program, you were just going to pay for you. You're going to be randomly paired with someone else who opted in and we're going to pay for you to go out to lunch one day. So I think that's also a really nice thing that you can do to help people feel better at work just by having a larger network. That's great. And Liz, as I've been staring at your name for the past (laughs) hour, I totally get it now. And I will probably never mispronounce someone's name that ends in L-I-E-N. I I don't know why that was so hard for me to pronounce, but lean, L-I-E-N, just like a lean on a house or a, yeah, legal lean, false lean. I got it. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. Liz, the name again of your book is No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. Could you let everybody know where they can find the book, but also where they can reach out to you and become part of your community? Yeah. So the book is on Amazon at Barnes and Nobles. It should be anywhere books are sold. And then for online, I think the website uh, that we have where there's a lot of resources and PDF guides is Liz and Molly. And Molly is spelled M-O-L-L-I-E. 
So Liz and And then we're also on Twitter and Instagram with the handle Liz and Molly. So if those are the best places. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. And Liz, that's such an old school question of mine to ask people where they can find the book. I must have got that from like, I don't know, watching David Letterman or something, because of course you can find it on Amazon. Where else do people buy books these days? Yeah, I think we do try and encourage people to go to local booksellers too. So it's still always good to to have that push of it's not only the internet where you can get books. Great. Yeah. I appreciate that sentiment. So anyway, Liz, thank you for coming on. And uh, yes, it was great talking to you today. You too. Thanks so much for having me.